Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. On this weekly show, I speak with successful developers about their advice on learning to code and getting your first junior developer job. My guest today is Ali Spittel, who frequently blogs about the things she wished she knew when learning to code and joins us today to share her advice for new programmers. I think especially when you're starting out, there's this temptation to learn it all. If you instead focus on building up depth first, the ideas of a loop or a function or object-oriented programming, all these things transfer no matter what you end up doing. Today, Ali works as a senior developer advocate at Amazon Web Services. Before that, she worked at a company you've surely heard of called Dev.2. And before that even, she was an instructor at General Assembly, which is a coding bootcamp with a similar ambition to Scrimba. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Ali about her experience as a teacher at a bootcamp because there her mission was to help new programmers go from zero to hero, learn to code and position themselves well enough that they could land a job. That's exactly what this podcast is all about. In this episode, Ali will teach you some of the science behind remembering what you learn, as well as highlights her best advice on how to structure your learning to meet your learning goals and find success as quickly as possible. Let's get into it. Ali, welcome to the Scrimba podcast. It's so nice to have you. Thanks so much for having me. This is really exciting. Maybe we could kick off by you just telling us a little bit about how you got into technology and what your breakthrough into your first developer job looked like. Yes, for sure. So it's definitely untraditional as I feel most people's paths are. So I grew up in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire, very, very rural. And I went to a high school that didn't even really have working computers. And so in college, I started out as a government major, political science. I really wanted to get into journalism, but I went to a school where you needed to take a certain amount of math classes just to graduate, which I think is a pretty normal thing. And computer science counted and was the only thing that fit into my schedule one semester. And I was like, okay, may as well try this thing out. I have no idea what it's going to be. I honestly stepped into that computer science class thinking that I was going to learn how to better format Microsoft Word documents or something like that. I had no idea what computer science was. And then they had us type Python code into a text editor. And I was like, what the heck is going on? Like, why am I doing this? But I thought it was the coolest thing. Once I started building applications with it, I could type something into a computer and something else would come out and we were building games. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. And so the professor really invested in me and he gave me a TA position or teaching assistant position for the next semester under him. And I decided that I was going to try to like double major or minor in computer science and then ended up in a C++ class the next semester, data structures and algorithms, which is an infamous weed out class. And I just didn't understand it anymore. I was pulling all these all-nighters trying to build Sudoku solvers or Huffman encoding algorithms. And I was like, I don't get it. Why am I doing this? I was learning Python the last semester, and now I'm trying to build essentially what's built into Python with C++. It just does not make sense to me. Like, I don't think this is what actual software engineers are doing. And now looking back on it, it's like, okay, yeah, those are actually things that a lot of people do need to know, and it does make sense to learn it, but that just didn't click for me. 
I was one of the very few women in the program and I was learning a lot later than a lot of these people. And so I was like, okay, it's just not for me. I got into programming too late, which I then taught at a boot camp for a lot of years and taught a bunch of 50 and 60 year olds how to code. And so I was definitely not too old as a 19 year old, but I only fell back into it when I was in an unrelated internship doing data analysis work. And I realized that I could automate a lot of my own job with Python. And then they recommended me for a software engineering job. And so I kind of lucked into it and ended up actually leaving college early to become a software engineer, despite being pretty new at it and really only ending up in it because I figured out that a lot of the manual things that I was doing could be much sped up using code. Does that mean you didn't actually get a computer science degree and you're basically a self-taught dev? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I took two computer science classes, but all the web development stuff, anything practical, I taught myself. And so I would say that I still consider myself self-taught, but I know a lot of people don't. So I say like mostly self-taught because I did take those two, two classes, but... For the most part, everything that I use on a daily basis, I did learn myself. I think that self-taught term gets thrown around a lot and it's quite hard to define. Like I didn't go to school to code, but I certainly had a lot of help along the way from people who wrote articles and book authors and course authors and people who would help me. And so to say I'm self-taught feels a bit of a stretch, but equally, it normally just means no computer science degree, right? Yeah, for sure. I almost think community taught is a better term for it. I like that. That's been gaining a bit more traction lately. I feel like I've seen that term a bit more on Twitter and things like that. But it sounds to me then like from the very beginning, there's always been almost two parts to the stuff you do professionally, which is coding, which you love, but you're clearly very passionate about teaching as well. For sure. For sure. In fact, teaching was another career path that I was considering in college. I was an education minor before I left school to become a software engineer. I think one of the really interesting things about code, especially now, is that it's a career that it doesn't just have to be about code and you get to integrate your other skills as well. And so that's what I enjoy now. I'm a developer advocate and I get to teach and I get to write and I get to interact with the community and still write a lot of code. That's awesome. I think we're very much in the same camp in that regard. And am I right in thinking that along the way you did work as a instructor at a boot camp for a period as well? What was that experience like? I will always say that that's probably my favorite job that I've had. Definitely the most stressful. And stressful? Why? <laughs> oh, because you feel like you have all these people's careers riding on you. And there's a lot of weight in that. They're putting a lot of trust in you to abandon their first career and decide to become a programmer instead. And so taking them on that journey, making sure that you're teaching things that are relevant, that are going to get them into the, the job force, that you're teaching to everybody in the class from the people who came in with a lot of coding knowledge as is. There were people in the coding bootcamp who had held previous software engineering jobs to people who were writing Hello World for the first time, stepping in that classroom. And so... It's a pretty different set of needs. And so trying to teach to all of them, it can be pretty difficult. So definitely a very high stress job, but I loved it. I love seeing people's journeys. I think one of the coolest things now is that I work at AWS or Amazon Web Services. And on my team, I have one of my former students and just seeing that progression and seeing a lot of their careers. Some of them are senior devs now because I started 
uh, almost four years ago at this point doing that. Actually, I think exactly four years ago. That's kind of scary. So like it's stressful. I totally get that responsibility, but also rewarding. Yeah. There is a parallel between what we do at Scrimba. So it sounds like you were bringing in students who had varied levels of experiences, but some had none at all. And by the time they finished the bootcamp, they were able to build projects independently so that they could go on to build their own things or maybe apply for jobs and things like that. Are there any sort of lessons that we can learn from that? So some of my favorite pieces of advice for people in that stage are don't be intimidated by the amount that's out there. There are so many worlds within programming, like game development, front-end web development, back-end development, mobile development. Like I keep listing these different fields all day. I think especially when you're starting out, there's this temptation to learn it all and this FOMO in a way, this fear of missing out that if you're not learning everything, then you're not going to be successful or that you're not going to find your path. And I think that that's incorrect in a lot of ways. If you instead focus on building up depth first, the ideas of loop or a function or object-oriented programming, all these things transfer no matter what you end up doing. And so having that more deep knowledge to start out with is only going to help you. And so don't get that shiny object syndrome of trying to learn it all and trying to learn the hot framework that people are talking about on Twitter this week. Instead, focus on the things that you need to. And you can find out what you need to learn either by doing a program like a bootcamp or Scrumba, but you can also learn this by looking looking up job postings in your area. And this is something that I really recommend, especially for people who are in less tech-heavy cities, is to just try to find job posts in your area and see what is listed on them. Is it Java? Is it Python? Is it React? Is it Angular? What are people asking for? And you can put those skills down and tailor your learning to those so that you're working with an end goal in sight. Or think about what you're interested in as well. Is it that you're coming from the medical field before learning to code or you're coming from working in insurance or something along those lines. If you can find a job or a posting that takes the skills from both of those career paths and hybridizes them together, then you're in a really great place to succeed because you have those previous career skills and then you have these new career skills. If you can smash those together with that institutional knowledge and the technical knowledge, that makes you really powerful and makes your resume really stand out in the stack. And so think about that as well when you're starting to look. I think another thing that people deal with is imposter syndrome and feeling like they are not good enough or that they're faking it to make it or whatever. And in some ways, like everybody is, everybody is having to learn on the job and Google things and look things up. And I think accepting that is really important and making sure to build your own confidence by doing things like tracking your wins or tracking your progress. I think that's really helpful as well. Absolutely. When you're learning to code, some of the progress is quite incremental. So it's hard to know how much progress you've actually made. Whereas if you can make a checkpoint, like you describe a month later, you can look back and see just how far you've come. That will then help your imposter syndrome, presumably. And, and I love your advice to look at local job ads, because if you can say, hey, my goal is to become a hireable developer. I want to get a job. I want to work in this area at this type of company. You look up those specific jobs and now you have a path, like they've given the path to you, the boldest listeners might even apply to those jobs very early. And as a result, they might get some actual feedback, which can inform what they learn next, right? Because at the end of the day, when people ask, like, am I ready to get a job or not? I think often the only way to find out is to apply. And then the employer will tell you if you can get that specific job. 
I get that question all the time too. Like, how do I know that I'm ready to apply or not apply? And I think the answer to that is to try and see what they say. The worst that they're going to say is no. And you didn't have that job in the first place. So you're not losing anything by them saying no. In fact, you might get actionable feedback on what to improve. And so you're no matter what in a better place than you were. And maybe the rejection will sting, but getting used to that is important. I also think though that interviewing is such an interesting skill in and of itself, especially in this industry that... I think most companies have moved away from this to some extent, but some companies do ask for skills that don't show up as much on the job. Things like leak code problems, for example. And so interviewing is a skill in and of itself. And so if you apply first to a couple of companies that you don't really want to work at that aren't your top pick, but are companies that have an interesting skill set or that you just want to try out, that can be a really good way to just build up that interviewing muscle and get more confident with it become more used to just the interview process and what it looks like. Worst case, you end up getting a job and get to negotiate that and maybe compare some You can practice negotiating salary then as an upside. I mean, that's a good problem to have. Yeah. I like that advice a lot. If I were to play the devil's advocate, I feel like a lot of people feel that that is like, they don't want to waste an employer's time by applying to a job they're not actually ready. You know, my point of view is that I would rather bomb or learn from those two experiences. So when I get the interview that I really, really want to succeed at, this isn't my practice, Ren, like I've practiced and you're, you're sort of serving yourself. As I say, literally playing for devil's advocate. What would you say to that? I'm a hiring manager now as well. So I have been in management roles for the last few years and leadership roles before that. And their job is also to sell you on the role. You're probably going to hear some pretty cool stuff throughout that process. And maybe you will be converted to it. That being said, if you're in that really early stage, it's kind of their job to be filtering this out as well with multiple rounds of interviewing. So you're not getting really, really deep in the interview process without being qualified for it or even the resume review process. Think about the place in the interview that maybe you're not progressing past. If you're not getting to the interview phase at the first point, how can you review your resume in order to get to those interviews? If you're not passing phone screens, then maybe think about that. If you're not passing technical assessments, think about what's going on there. Or if it's the more interpersonal interviews that you're stumbling with, think about how you can improve the processes there. If you are enjoying this episode of the Scrimba podcast, please do us a favor and share this episode with your friends on social media. Word of mouth is the single best way to support a podcast that you like, so thanks in advance. Next week, I'm joined by Taylor, who is a senior recruiter. Taylor's going to help explain what an external recruiter is and how you as a junior looking for a developer job can reach out and potentially work with one. I think if you can leverage a recruiter appropriately, which is why I'm so vocal about it, is I think it could be a huge like cheat code to your career. I think you really need to build relationships with agency recruiters because agency recruiters see so much more. And that's not to knock in-house recruiters. But at the end of the day, in-house recruiters have a lot of other responsibilities than just recruiting. We'll also cover things like what you should include on your resume and your LinkedIn so that you get the most recruiters reaching out to you. Among other things, that is next week on the weekly Scrimba podcast. Subscribe so you see it in your feed and support the show. Back to the episode with Ali Spittle. 
I'm super excited to get some more of your perspectives on learning to code because as a self-taught developer yourself and someone who's worked so closely with people learning to code, I think there's a lot we can learn from you, Ali. One thing you said to me, which I thought was really interesting and stood out is how when you learn things like for loops and if statements and various other things, there there is a certain element of them transferring to other programming languages. Do you agree that the first programming language is the hardest to learn? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think it can depend for sure. And I think that different things are going to click with different people for different reasons as well. So for example, I know that a lot of people struggle with the syntax of JavaScript, but for other people, it clicks really well because you get visual feedback on it. If you run a JavaScript script, ideally things are going to happen on a web page. Whereas with a language like C++, you're probably instead waiting for it to compile, making sure that it compiles first, and then maybe you're getting something to log to the console or whatever. And so that's a little bit less visual. And then for other people, things like Python really click because it's a little bit more close to spoken language. I know for a lot of people who primarily use English, it clicks really well. But I also know for a lot of people who maybe English isn't their primary language, it can be more difficult to learn because what is for and what is in and like all these different things that you need to use to write Python code might not translate as well. And so personally, Python was much easier for me to learn than C++, even though C++ was my second programming language instead of my first. I think for a lot of people, that initial hump of learning the problem solving is almost the most difficult piece of it, of how to take a big problem and break it down into tiny little problems that are solvable. Think of it almost like a to-do list. If you have a really large item in your to-do list, like finish the whole project you're not going to do that. It's intimidating. It's scary on your to-do list. Every time you look at it, you're like, I don't know when to start or how to start. But if you break that into 25 small little subtasks, you can check those off as you go and solve each one of them independently. I think with programming, it's the same thing. And this is something that I see all the time with new programmers is that instead of Googling how to retrieve an element from the DOM in JavaScript, for example, instead, they would Google something like how to build a tic-tac-toe solver in JavaScript. And when you're learning, it's not really going to help you to take somebody else's code, copy and paste it into your own. Instead, solving each one of those little pieces individually is going to be much more important for your process and being able to research those is much more important. That definitely transfers between languages. So do all of those logic things, like if statements and for loops and classes, that's going to transfer from language to language for the most part. If I I can make an observation, you said about Python, it was just great to see the results immediately. Like that helped you get excited about it. And then you had fun doing it as well. Whereas with C++, it didn't feel as fun. Yeah. And and isn't it weird that one of the ways to learn most efficiently is just to have fun with what you're doing and find the thing you actually want to do. Yeah, that's also something that I recommend when people are deciding what projects to build because it's so important when you're starting out to build real projects that you're going to be able to put on your portfolio someday and show to future employers, especially if you're self-teaching. I think that's a little less relevant if you have a CS degree because you just have that line on your resume. But 
build something that you're excited about because if you want to build it and it's something that you would actually use, then you're going to be so much more likely to actually spend time on it and stick with it rather than leaving a bunch of half-finished projects and abandoning them because you no longer find them interesting. So build things that are going to challenge yourself and are also going to align with your other interests. So if you're artistic, maybe you build a generative art app or something along those lines. Or maybe if you're really into productivity, you can build your perfect productivity app. Or if you're interested in biking, maybe you build some sort of biking app. Ali, if you were going to hypothetically learn to code today, do you think you would sort of just focus mostly on projects like you described? Um, Would you perhaps mix in some tutorials and books and things like that? I think one thing to mention up front is that scientifically people learn best when they learn the same material in different ways. So if they learn the same material in a written format and then learn it with a different instructor using a video tutorial, for example, those different modalities will combine together to make that information stick better. That being said, you need to be testing yourself the whole entire time. And usually the way that you do that for programming is building projects yourself. Or if you're in the interview prep phase, maybe that's writing down flashcard questions and answering them there. So it's so important to test your knowledge and make sure that you're actively retrieving it because that's how things actually stick in your memory. Instead of just absorbing material, you're actually using that material to create something. So I do think that people need to have an initial basis in something. And so that's where the tutorials are really helpful, but then they actually need to apply that knowledge as well. So when I was teaching, I would do the format I do, which is me saying the framing, why is something important? What's the background behind this? Showing them some diagrams of how this actually fits into an architecture, things like that first. And then it would be we do, where we all write the code together I'm typing, but they're typing as well to try to hit the memory there. And then from there, it's them trying it out independently and solving the problem in a different way to apply it to a different solution. And then finally, a lot of times I do group work as well so that different students could support each other and students who were really clicking with something could maybe help with the students that weren't understanding the concept immediately. One thing I've gone my whole life pretty much believing is that you have a learning style. Some people like to read, some like to write, some like to listen, some like to participate in group activities. They're social learners. I always considered myself a a kinesthetic learner, which to my understanding means I like to get my hands dirty and see the result immediately. I always felt that coding was exciting to me for that reason. Whereas maths, for example, it felt so much more theoretical. But what you just described, I think, if I understood you correctly, is that you should really be combining these different modalities to learn the most efficiently. The science behind this says that people have different preferred learning styles. So maybe they enjoy watching videos, maybe they enjoy reading blog posts, But if the goal is end learning and to make something click, then actually learning it in multiple different modalities is going to make it so that that information sticks more. And we know this is a problem, don't we? Because so many people end up in this tutorial hell where they just haven't learned how to escape tutorials. What advice would you give someone to help them avoid tutorial hell? I would say to test yourself as soon as possible and make sure that you're actually writing the code and making projects instead of just thinking about 
about it because again, this amount of information, you can absorb it to no end. You can just watch this, these tutorials and YouTube videos and feel like you're being really productive. But at the end of the day, nothing's going to stick unless you actually build things with it. And I think that this is actually something that I have noticed as I've progressed in my career is need driven learning. So instead of just learning for the sake of learning, which I think can be really great at early phases in your career, instead identifying what you need to learn to get to your end goal and then reverse engineering that of what are the steps that I need to take in order to actually get there. For example, I work at AWS now, so I do a lot of cloud engineering type things, and that's not where I have come from in my career. And so reverse engineering that of what are the smaller things that I need to learn in order to be able to constructively use this on my job, or instead of just aiming to learn Vue for the sake of learning Vue, saying that okay, my engineering lead is saying that we're going to use Vue on this project. What are the things that I'm going to learn, need to learn in Vue in order to build this user interface or something along those lines? I think as you progress in your career, that's something that you'll see more often. But you can even do that when you're starting out too, about looking at those job descriptions again and noticing the, the things in there and what they're building and trying to build backwards from that. Another thing I understand about learning is that we're pretty bad at objectively measuring our learning. And, and as a result, we kind of do the things that make us feel productive. And if I read a book cover to cover, as I, as I used to at one time, I, I felt very productive. But, but what you're saying, and I completely agree with, is that if you learn things just in time, that is not only going to help you learn more efficiently, but frankly, it's probably more realistic because, you know, when you, when you have a problem at work or on a project, you need to be good at knowing where to find the answers, not necessarily remembering them, but knowing where to find the answers and then come back to your project and make progress. Um, so this all sounds incredibly productive to me, Ali. Back when I was a junior engineer, I would spend my nights watching just Udemy courses on like game development in C Sharp and learning Angular JS and all these things that I never, ever ended up learning. And so I wasted so much time just learning for learning's sake rather than learning what I actually needed to. And so I'm trying to tell all the people out there listening to this to not make the same mistakes that I made. Learn the things that you actually need to learn or the things that you really want to learn because they follow some passion that you have rather than learning just for the sake of learning, unless you really love that and then go for it. What do you think about almost like hoarding courses? I, I know that, for example, Udemy are notorious for offering, you know, flash discounts. And I spoke to Kent about this recently, and he wasn't very fond of that practice, to say the least. But regardless, people tend to capitalize on it and build a collection of these courses across a variety of subjects. I often see people joking about it, saying you won't have time to watch them all anyway. It's not going to help you that much. Are you familiar with this? And what do you think? Oh my goodness. I was notorious for this when I was a junior dev as well. well I you was were one of those, really. So bad about hoarding all these Udemy courses because they always have these sales, right? That are like, you're never going to get this 60% off again. And they have that 60% off every week. But it would be this fear of missing out. And so I would stockpile all these courses on things that I wouldn't actually need. And so I definitely regret that as well. But uh, I, I think now I try to focus on finishing something before getting something else. But I still add time to my day, like I schedule learning time every day, because I think it's still so important to be continuing your skills. Now I focus more on learning management skills and all these other things that I need in my day-to-day -day career. But 
scheduling that time to still be progressing is so important, especially because I think that this is a career that attracts people who enjoy learning and we're never going to be at the end of learning with code. It's always progressing and evolving. And the tech stacks people were using at the beginning of my career are dramatically different than they are now. Even there's always going to be evolutions within the field and staying on top of that is somewhat important. The only thing I would add is like, I feel as though I've sometimes just pushed through a course because I want to finish it. And I've set this like thick headed goal to do it, but it's actually, it's not working for me actually. Like I'm not getting on with the teaching style or it turns out that this particular module is not as relevant to me as I thought it was. So one thing I've sort of employed in, in recent years is like, if I'm reading a book and I'm just not enjoying it, I just put it down. Like I don't feel the obligation to finish it. And I feel the same about a course or an article now because yeah, like it might not be serving you the best to just finish all these things. Like you might want to hop around and that's how you might crack that particular problem or topic the quickest. Definitely, definitely. Everybody, every teacher is going to come at something from a different angle. And so find the ones that are clicking with you and stick with that instead of feeling the need to stick with stuff that isn't working for you or that you're not enjoying. I also do that with books. I have a little free library a couple blocks from me and I bring books there constantly because somebody else will probably benefit from these books, but they're just not serving me. And so got to donate them. We're talking about learning to code and a bit of the science behind learning. One thing I want to dig into a little bit is like the mentality of learning hard, because I know that when you're learning to code, sometimes you have a chip on your shoulder. Sometimes you're just so excited about the end goal. You just push, 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 and you, you know, you hustle as they say, and you really drive and just cram all this time into learning. And I definitely feel like I fell in that camp. And on one hand, I do think I kind of got a lot of concentrated experience, but on reflection, I also remember days and weeks where I just felt so tired. And so if you add it up over an average time, I feel like maybe it wasn't the best thing. What is the importance of rest when you're learning something? I think it's hugely important because a lot of the science, again, says that your brain does the storing of this knowledge when it's resting. I think we all have seen memes about programmers coming up with the solutions to problems in the shower or whatever. And so taking those times away are so important, especially if you're really frustrated with a problem, you're not going to fix it while you're frustrated. And so taking a step away to calm down, you'll probably come back and be able to solve that much faster than if you're just, you know, slamming your head against the wall for a bunch of hours. I think it's also really important to be honest. And I think a lot of people are on social media now being like, don't work more than 40 hours a week. Hustle culture is awful and things like that. And I do agree that we shouldn't be romanticizing overwork or burnout or anything like that. But I think it's also important to say that when I was starting out my career, I did not work a 40 hour week. I did put a lot more hours into that. And so I just like to be transparent. I think rest is incredibly important and it's something that I really integrate into my life. And I work a pretty standard 40 hour work week right now, but that was not always the case. And so I don't want to be dishonest about that. Yeah, like I, I can definitely relate to that, like struggling on a problem. And then the next morning I come back and it's like obvious, like, oh my God, why did I, why did I try and push through that for so long? And then I, I later learned about these like two modes of thinking, focused and diffuse. 
Yeah, this is a really important concept. If anybody listening is really interested in the science behind learning, there is a course on, I think it's Coursera, that's learning how to learn. And it's amazing. They also have a book about it and a newsletter that I get every week. There's two different mindsets, I guess, and both are equally important for learning. Focus is when you're actually sitting there learning something, you're doing flashcards in order to recall that information. Regurgitating it is so important too. You can't just ingest it once and then never come back to it because you will forget it. The more times that you retrieve the knowledge, the more it's going to stick. But then also having the diffuse mindset of taking time for breaks and away from this material is also going to make that information stick with you better. You mentioned that you schedule time for learning new things today. I'm just curious, if you want to learn something new, how do you typically go about it these days? I'm a total reader. I read pretty much nonstop. I try to read at least like 50 books a year. And so that's where I spend a lot of my time personally. But I also spend a lot of time on YouTube videos and watching people on there and their discussions. I also subscribe to a ton of newsletters where there's articles linked and things like that as well. Just to go one step further, like do you structure that in any kind of way? Yeah. So I have a to-do list that I keep in Trello, which is just the way that my brain works the best. I know other people use Notion or whatever. I think I don't think that there's a right software to use by any means. Trello just works with my brain. And so I have a list for every day of the week. And on there, I have a chapter for a nonfiction book each day that I want to read. So Working Clean is a book that I'm reading right now, which is about how professional chefs work in the kitchen and how you can use that in your day-to-day life. I'm also reading a book about management. I really like Lara Hogan's work on this. I read her blog every day, or at least check it every day to see if there's a new article. Big fun. Does that mean you sort of read the same book every day, a different chapter, or do you literally just pick different chapters each day? I try to rotate to have a couple different books that I'm reading at a time so that I take space in between focusing on these management concepts or whatever, and then productivity, or I'm trying to get better at learning how to YouTube as well. So I'm doing a lot of research into that. I find that I get really overwhelmed if I try to read five chapters about management in one week, because I try to come out of each reading that I do with action items. So I'll actually add those to my to-do list. Okay, she recommended asking all these one-on-one questions to your reports. And so I try to actually do that and follow through. And so if I'm reading five different chapters about management in a week, then that becomes really overwhelming. So if I add more of a pause in between that and maybe read a chapter of that book a week, then I can actually act upon the things that are recommended instead of just getting overwhelmed by them. And then you're diffusing as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Making it stick. I think looking at LinkedIn before this interview, like I think your career has been so impressive so far. I've only really worked with startups where we don't necessarily use titles like senior, so I don't know much about it. I'm wondering in your mind, what separates or really maybe based on your experience, what did that transition from being uh, a non-senior to a senior team member look like? I think that it really depends on the company too, that levels mean very, very different things at different places. And so I have worked at startups most of my career, but also now I'm at a big company. And honestly, that's another piece of advice that I'd give is to try out both working at a startup and a bigger company and see what works for you and what you can learn 
from both because the work experiences are so different in these different environments and you can learn a lot just from that. I think it's taking on more roles so that you're helping other people do the best at their job as well instead of just focusing on doing the best in your individual role. It's starting to influence other people and mentoring them and bringing them along journeys with you. And so that's the biggest thing that I would say if you're trying to become more senior is work on those teaching skills and mentoring skills and make it so that you're impacting more than just yourself. And also thinking about roadmaps and how to choose a tech stack for things. If you're becoming a tech lead, how to make these architectural decisions instead of just working on features, you're working on actual end-to-end products. That's a fantastic answer. I like that a lot because honestly, our listeners are very much learning to code and juniors. I don't think they're going to go applying to senior jobs tomorrow, but senior can seem like quite an intimidating title perhaps. And it's quite ambiguous. As you say, it can change from company to company. It's a lot to do with actually supporting the junior. So you can look to these seniors as sources, both of inspiration and knowledge, but also they might inform decisions that put you on a very productive path in your job and your personal development as well. Junior developers, you see a lot that they're working on a feature or a ticket or one piece of the puzzle instead of the whole puzzle itself. And then maybe you become mid-level and then you work on something end-to-end and then you become more senior and then you're focusing on the higher level things on the product and you're stuck in a lot more meetings than you were as a junior. You're usually actually writing a lot less code the more senior you get in your career too. And then you become maybe a tech lead or something like that and you're making a lot of decisions. So Ali, just to close this out, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at AWS? I lead and manage a developer advocacy team. On which product, Ali? On Amplify. Amplify is is a product at AWS that is mostly a wrapper on top of other AWS products. And we make it so that it's easier for front-end and mobile developers to use the power of the cloud, which I'm really excited about because, again, my background's in teaching. And so the idea of making these really powerful tools easier to use for somebody who is maybe starting out or who just has a different focus in their career. They don't need to have this super deep cloud knowledge, but they still want to be able to use these things. And so that's what I get to work on. And developer advocacy in itself is an interesting career path too, where instead of just writing production code, I'm more writing demos and being the first user of things, giving feedback to our product team as a developer of what I enjoy and what I don't enjoy in the product. And then also teaching it to the community as well. So interfacing with them and showing them how to use these things. It's an interesting hybridization of all of the different skills that I've accumulated through my career. Last week's guest at the time of this being published um, worked as a director of developer relations. So I'm excited to get to plug that. And uh, just out of interest, do you, do you work with Eric Hanschitz by chance? Because I think he works on the Amplify team. Yes, he works on our JavaScript team, I believe. He's a software engineer. That's so cool because Eric was on the podcast just a few weeks ago um, telling us a little bit about Amplify as well. So I don't know, maybe maybe, oh, maybe awesome. Scrimba users are going to be a hybrid of React.js and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Amplify on top of Cognito and DynamoDB and all those powerful, powerful technologies, AWS. That's amazing. That's amazing. And we should definitely plug his YouTube channel too. It's amazing. Oh yeah, Program of Eric is great. I like what he's doing at the moment, bringing on different guests to sort of share their knowledge while he's uh, figuring out some next steps to the channel. Super cool. And yeah, super cool to talk to you, Ali. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. 
That was Ali Spittle, Senior Developer Advocate working on Amplify at Amazon Web Services. Ali also co-hosts a podcast called The Ladybug Podcast and writes on her blog at welearncode.com. You can find all these links as well as a complete transcript in the episode's show notes. Next week, I'm talking to Taylor, a senior recruiter who's going to distill exactly how you can work with external recruiters and what sorts of things to optimize about your LinkedIn and resume so that more recruiters reach out to you about junior developer roles. Remember to please subscribe to Vscreamer Podcast, both to see the episode with Taylor in your feed, as well as to support the show. We really appreciate it. This episode was edited by Jan Osenovic, and I'm your host, Alex Booker. You can follow me on Twitter at Booker Codes, where I share highlights from the podcast and other news by Scrimbo. See you next week.